Dotnet Rocks episode 827 with guest Matt Nunn. Recorded live Monday, November 12th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering GesturePack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now here are Carl and Richard. Chaos. Naked people everywhere. <laughs> um, <laughs> that only makes sense to someone who's seen this done. That's they know right. everybody else is like, what? What? <laughs> this is radio. I radio. thought this was radio. This is radio. Hey, we're in Bentonville, Arkansas, home of Walmart. Yeah. You're a little ambivalent about that, are you? <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, we're, uh, we're here with Matt Nunn. Matt Nunn is here. Yes, And uh, very exciting on the road trip, back in the swing after a weekend Had away. a nice weekend at home, my friend. I had a great weekend at home. You had a great weekend driving with our driver. Yes, all the way from Jacksonville to Bentonville, yeah. uh, across uh, Florida, and a little Georgia, and a little Alabama, and a little Mississippi, and then- Quite a lot of barbecue, Tennessee, too, along the way, and, Oh, yeah, and some catfish, yeah. and then a nice rainstorm across the Ozarks to get here. Which is always fun, driving oh, yes. through the Ozarks in the rain. Yep. Well, before we talk to Matt, uh, we need to do a little business, so let's kick it off with the music for Better Know a Framework. So what do you got, buddy? Well, I found on CodePlex.com a really interesting project, and it's quite, uh, it's quite popular. 3,000 downloads, and hmm. they just came out with a, uh, an update. It's WebSearch.net. WebSearch.net. It's an open source research platform that provides uniform data source access data modeling, feature calculation in data mining, hmm. some other things. It facilitates the experiments of web search researchers due, it, due to its high flexibility and extensibility. Cool. The platform can be used or extended by any language compatible for .NET 2 framework from C Sharp, recommended VB.NET to C++ and Java. Thanks to the large coverage of knowledge in web search research, it is necessary to model the techniques and maintain them in a solution. Hmm. WebSearch.net platform will grow robust when more and more people are involved in this work. And he's a student. So it looks pretty cool and it looks very popular. Uh, like I said, had quite a lot of visits and... Um Somebody's clearly interested in web search research. And integrating it into their sites. Yeah. That's cool. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 753, and that is the show we did a while back with Brian Hunter and O.J. Reeves about programming in Erlang. Oh, I loved it. Yeah, no, we had a great time with that. We saw them on the road trip, too. Yes, And we this did. comment's from Brett Slasky, who says... Not sure what it was about this show, but after listening to it, I cracked open a fresh install of Erlang and started learning. I've been wanting to learn a functional language and functional programming in general. Why not start with Erlang and have to start somewhere? I located a decent tutorial at learnyousomeerlang.com. Learn you some Erlang. Which is a link we put on the show. Great, great URL. It has been an interesting experience, one I am happy to have begun. My biggest issue is that I have no idea what I'm going to do with the language at this point. Right. Perhaps that will come with time, and perhaps not at all. Thank you. I'm appreciating everyone taking some time to put this together. 
Well, Brett, what can I tell you? You know, we've been looking around at all these new languages, and all, not that Erlang's new, but, you know, the, right. sort of this resurgence of language and finding out what were the same, what was different. And Erlang sits by itself as kind of a really different way. And I know it's functional. It's also the functional language. Heck, you can program functional on C Sharp. Right. But here's something that is so deeply functional, it could be no other way, right down to the point where it isn't a .NET language for a run reason. It could never be one. Right? It's a whole OS unto itself. Right. Runs off on the bare metal. Yeah, in its own way. So I'm glad you're trying it out. We've been trying it out, too. We're really excited about it. And we'll see what happens next. And so uh, thanks so much for your comment. We'd love to send you a mug. And if you'd like a mug, just write a comment on the website at donnetrocks.com. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight offers comprehensive developer training online. They have over 350 courses uh, aimed at developers, uh, authored by industry experts and MVPs and people such as appear on our show. They produce 8 to 10, maybe even 12 sometimes courses a month, new courses on topics covering everything on the Microsoft stack, plus Java, JavaScript, HTML, CSS, uh, iOS, Android, process, you name it, it's there. Try it today. Pluralsight subscriptions start at just $29, pluralsight.com. And with that, let's give Matt Nunn a big hand. Give him Matt Nunn. You've been with Microsoft a while. What is your current title and position? Uh, I don't remember. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, I've been here. Well, I've been at Microsoft now full-time for 10 years. Okay. Yeah. Um, currently a senior product manager in the Visual Studio product team. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you're also responsible for this road trip. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. <laughs> I'm, I don't trip. Come on. <laughs> I don't know that I want to take full responsibility no, no, no. for the road trip. Just partial responsibility. Definitely you're involved in the planning with Richard and I, and uh, the Visual Studio team has been vital in getting us all around. All around and around and around. <laughs> all around. All to some around. of the places you never thought you would visit. Before we did this, uh, before we started the show, you did a 20-minute interview in which you talked about the modern app lifecycle, which is your forte, but um, also did this great demo that, uh, that just blew me away, which was remote debugging uh, a Windows Store app on a Windows RT device, which clearly doesn't run Visual Studio. However, you could deploy it from your uh, PC or notebook that does run Visual Studio and use the remote debugging. Awesome. So Thank just you. tell us how, how that works and then briefly what you were able to do. Yeah, so basically um, what happens there is you've got, because you know you can't run Visual Studio on a Windows RT device, right. um, you know, once the Surface Pro comes out or, or any of the Pro devices, you could put VS on and you can just deploy directly from Visual Studio. Mm -hmm. But on an RT device, it's not possible, so you have to find another way to do it. So basically what I did was I actually set up my own small wireless network because we're in a... Well, we're in a, a big hall mm -hmm, in right. Bentonville, Arkansas. Yeah. So I have my own wireless network. Both of my devices are on that network. Um, and all I use is the ro remote debugging tools. Those you can install onto an RT device. So mm -hmm. there is a remote debugging tool that waits to look for a connection. Mm -hmm. And then there are some remote testing tools as well that allow it to talk back to our test client. Mm. Once you've got those on the, on the device, then you can set up Visual Studio. And instead of choosing run a, deploy and run at a local machine, mm -hmm. you choose deploy and run at a remote machine. Mm -hmm. um, that will give you a dialogue that tells you to ask you to put in what machine it is you want to run on. You can use a machine name. Um, in the case here, because I don't have an internet connection, DNS resolution is a bit funky. So I had to give it an IP address. Mm -hmm. um, but once I've given it the IP address, it then knows where that machine is. Um, and literally, when you choose run, 
it will deploy directly down to the RT device, start running the app on the RT device. Then I can switch over to Test Professional and bring up the exploratory testing tools. And because I have remote testing, the remote testing stuff running on the RT device as well, I can just step in and immediately start testing that device and actually collecting information about what's happening on the device directly into Visual Studio. So as you're navigating through the device and pressing different buttons, going to different screens, all that data is being logged by the testing tool. All of that data is being logged. Uh, not only the data, but also the touch points, because it's really important on an RT device and on Windows 8 apps that you understand how people are actually touching the device. Yeah. So you actually get a little crosshair cursor that shows you whereabouts in the app it was touching, hmm. um, and that little image comes back. Um, what about when you went to deploy to the remote machine? That's an ARM processor. Did you have to tell it it's a different platform, or did it do it autom automatically? It does it automatically. Ah, so nice. it knew, hey, that's ARM compiled differently. Correct. That's very cool. <laughs> that's very cool. Smarter than you think, actually. Yeah. And we, we also knew from a tablet show, I think, that the, the any CPU now option it, includes ARM. It doesn't matter. Yeah, because it's all handled by the .NET runtime mm -hmm. yeah. underneath. So as long as you're building for a Windows 8 Windows 8 store style interface, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter whether it's an ARM device or an Intel device. When you deploy it from Visual Studio, it'll just work on those devices. It's just great. See, that seems to me to be the normal model. I, that I my big desktop machine is what I want to develop on. I like my massive screens and so forth, and I want to just be able to deploy. To any device I want to work on, whether they're running Intel chipset or ARM chipset and so forth, it's just like, I want to work on my desktop, deploy it remotely to to whatever. It seems like that should be the normal pattern. I, th and I, I think it's becoming the normal pattern unless you're looking for like ultra levels of performance where you need to use the hardware specifically. Mm -hmm. yeah. But as long as you obfuscate from the physical hardware, and that's why you have .NET or any of the libraries sure. sets that you have in yeah. C or in .NET or in in Java even, um, because you're trying to get away from the hardware and be able to just build on top. Now, if you want to be able to take advantage of everything on an RT device or on an Intel device or an AMD device, the graphics and all the other things, then, yeah, you need to know what's on it. Mm -hmm. But for the majority of the stuff we build, then that doesn't really matter. We really talk about line of business apps that are running Windows Store mode, you know, then we're... we're doesn't really matter. It no, should be pretty abstract. Doesn't really matter. Okay. Well, I like that setup because now, as Richard said, you can use your desktop, which probably doesn't have a touch interface, or maybe you know, at least in uh, November 2012, doesn't have a touch interface. Yeah. You know, like Yet. next year, who knows? Um, but in that way, you can do both. You can test out the touchability yeah. of, and it's really important app. with with the store apps now to be able to test the touchability to understand what it's like to use from a touch interface point of view. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, it, it's it is just a different way of thinking about your user interaction with the application. It's it's funny to watch people as they slowly move to Windows eight that you know they'll they'll go from their world of a laptop, which is all keyboard driven. Yeah, you know, yep. it's all like Windows key, blah blah blah, blah. and mm -hmm. you know, all of the old school people are, you know, they're all still typing and yep. stuff. You know, some people go to mouse. Um, you quickly discover that you know it's mouse and keyboard, and then slowly you start seeing like the Surface device or some of the other ones which are have keyboards, have touch screens, and the way you interact with the device just changes. Mm -hmm. Just changes. You know, I'm keyboarding for some of the time, and I'm touching, and some right. of the time I'm using the mouse because I need to do things that a mouse is just good for. Right. But a lot of the times it's like from keyboard to the screen, and then back to the mouse if I'm working somewhere like Word. Mm -hmm. um, and it's fascinating to watch the people change the way they interact with their machine. Surfing the web? Yeah, you ever try to surf the web on your phone? It's a little small. Especially when you're looking at a big list like the feature list of active reports. Oh yeah? 
Yeah, we've been using it for 15 years. You know, the coolest new feature, I think, is the new Silverlight Report Viewer. What's cool about it, of course, is it's both native Silverlight for printing, but it's also got PDF support. So that really minimizes the amount of data that has to come over the wire. Makes it a lot more efficient. Well, we've been looking for a good solution for Silverlight data viewing. Yeah, it's a great product. I, I think I'm going to order it. Not on that. No, not on here. I'll go to my desk first. Active reports from Component 1. Smarter components for smarter developers. So getting back to the remote debugging thing, one of the things that you were able to do was generate those tests and take screenshots and include those and then go back and run them again. Yep. And 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 kick off a, a bug report into TFS. That's right. Time. So yeah, a lot of the great new technology we have in the test professional product with this exploratory testing is literally around the problem with testing is that you've got manual testing where I've written a script down and I give that to someone and they walk through that script and they right. tell me if there's a problem with it. Hmm. Or I have automated testing, whether it be load or functional, where I've got this automation that's going to run and it either completes or it fails. Mm -hmm. Right. The problem is that's great if you know specifically whereabouts you're going to go and test. Mm -hmm. Most people don't know where the bugs are in their code. Yeah. The bugs just kind of happen organically. Um, and occur at some point while a user's using an application. Right. The other thing I see with exploratory testing is really about, that's the only thing that really speaks to usability. Yeah. Like I really appreciate the demo you did with the whole wireless, because now I could actually show it with my big dev uh, laptop machine, go on site where these guys are actually using tablets in the field, where the mobility is important, maybe they're using the camera and so forth, mm. put it in this remote debugging mode and watch them without actually having to physically follow them around use the app in the wild and capture all that data and see where they fumble. You yeah. could, absolutely. And you could, yeah, you could do something very similar with gaining feedback in general as well as finding bugs. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's interesting when you talk to testers about it as well. Exploratory testing is the thing they're the most excited about. Mm -hmm. That's where they think their, their nirvana is, is that finding the edge cases, finding the things that break when they're not supposed to. Um, and then the big key thing that we showed today was not only the ability to allow you to go off and do that, but the biggest problem with exploratory testing is you've been working on this app for 15 minutes and suddenly you find a bug. Mm -hmm. How am I ever going to tell someone how to get back there? Yeah. Right. So if I ever need to send a developer to go and fix it, they're like, uh, well, if you've got a good error report, I might be able to find it. Right. And when the developers fixed it, how do I give that back to a tester and say, hey, just go and reproduce this bug? It took 15 minutes. Can't really tell you what I did. Mm -hmm. So is that incorporating IntelliTrace now? You can this? incorporate IntelliTrace into it as well. So I could have collected IntelliTrace logs if I'd had them running um, and brought that all back. But the really key thing is I have all of the steps that I went through. And I can trim that down to just the period of time that I think was important. So unlike IntelliTrace, is probably not generating gobs and gobs of data, right? No. Well, it generates as much as you want it to do. You can turn it up to yep. 11, if yeah, you I mean, will. What IntelliTrace gets scared. Where I've gotten in trouble with IntelliTrace <coughs> is uh, instrumenting a, a web server under load, right? Where I've spat out 30 gigs of data in five minutes. Like, you got to be careful. That thing will fill hard drives. But that's many simultaneous connections. I would think that IntelliTrace running on a, on a tablet with one person interacting with it, where you're capturing every entry and exit point for every method, it's going to be thousands, but not hundreds of thousands. Yeah, right? correct. And you yeah. typically start off just looking at exceptions. Sure. sure. Um, and once you've gathered exceptions and you can find out where the exception problems are, if you then can't find the problem, what you would do is taking the steps you know to recreate the test, you then turn IntelliTrace up a little bit so you got all of the call information mm -hmm. and then you could really track through what was happening. But you don't. You typically don't start with IntelliTrace with everything turned on. Right. You start with it light 
and then you add to it as you move move around. He's still, but it's still very much in a, a reproducible mode. You've got to figure out how you made that error and, and do it a few times and, and tweak and tune the capture to finally understand how to do yeah, it. Often, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that to me is that is it'd be great to catch everything in the wild. It just seems like that's still a little out of reach. I mean, I like the preemptive tools. There are some products out there that try and do more wild capture, but to be lighter, they don't catch as much detail. Right, and, and that's always the problem you have with catching in the wild is that every time you put something on a machine that's collecting information, mm -hmm. well, you're dirtying that machine experience yes. because it's going to be using some processing power. The observer effect applies. Correct, right? exactly. Yeah, I've, I've even run into cases where we the error went away because of the instrumentation being turned on. <laughs> yes, that also could happen. Um, it, it, it's a pro yes, exactly. It can be a problem where you know now it's not exactly the same as it was when the error occurred yep. because you have this seemingly completely disconnected thing running but no, that's made a difference to it. I know this is kind of a strange, off, weird question, but if you ha are developing a WPF app for touch, mm -hmm. not in a Windows store, can you still use the remote debugging to deploy that uh, to a WinRT tablet? Yeah, absolutely. You can remote debugging has actually been around a while to be able to deploy just to remote devices. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, so all you're doing is you're saying, hey, rather than when I hit run, deploy it to the local machine that I'm working on, yeah. deploy it to this machine that's sitting at this IP address. Now, I, I, I suppose we're talking about Surface Pro, which has desktop mode support, yep. but not a not an RT device. But but it's good to know you can. Can I do it with phone, please? No, pretty please, oh. not today. Because well, because the thing that gets so exciting about the RT side is here's a device that can't run all the other tools. This is the only way to really diagnose that machine. And so I'd love to do it with more devices. Yeah, today you can't do it directly to a, a Windows 8 phone um, or a Windows 7 phone. I imagine that's coming. Yeah, I, I would hope. Now, you sure. breezed past how you set this up pretty quickly, but was it actually that simple? Uh, it is actually that simple. Once you, once you understand what it is you're trying to achieve, mm -hmm. um, the, the, the key thing is to get, get that network all to yourself. Right. Yeah. So, so let other your, people mess with it. So you're in your own subnet with these machines. Did you have to pre-install anything on the RT box, or were you able to do it purely from your, your studio box? No, you have to pre-install um, the remote debugging tools and the remote testing tools onto the WinRT box. On the They're RT just box. a really small download from the Visual Studio website. And you have to run them? They sort of have them? You start them executing. Right. Um, the debugging tools, are the, the testing tools are actually a service. Mm -hmm. The debugging tool, you have to just run it. Right. You don't want it running all the time, because it's just watching for Visual Studio to make a connection. Right. And then, so you turn those on on your RT box, and then you go over to your studio, de the, the debugger on the studio box and say, all right, connect to that. Now push the app. Exactly. Okay. Yep. Yeah, and it really is pretty, it's pretty simple. The biggest problem that I've seen with it, and this again comes down to keeping control of your network, is latency issues. Mm -hmm. um, you'll have even seen it a little bit while we were doing the demo, but you can get to a point where the latency of the network means that the remote debugger kind of gives up trying to send you information. Oh. And the more you collect, the more screenshots, the more detail, the more it has to package up to send back again. Yeah, this really sounds like you don't want it on the corporate Wi-Fi. <laughs> no, that could yeah. be bad. <laughs> And doesn't work very right. well. Yeah. yeah. So as soon as that network gets even a little bit busy, because this seems like it's very data intensive. Yeah. I mean, if you think how much information it's sending back, I mean, when you pull it up, you could actually pull it up and take a, rather than a full screenshot, a rectangular screenshot. Well, you're watching that screen over the Wi-Fi. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a remote session into that device, um, not a remote desktop. And, and Wi-Fi is only so fast. And Wi-Fi is only so fast. Yeah. It would be, if you could direct connect, it would be a little bit better. Yeah, mm -hmm. but we can't. No. Yep. So there's no plug on the surface. There's just no way to get that in there. So, you can okay. plug in through the USB port. I guess you could. Yeah, that, that would be about it.
Kind of defeats the purpose, though. You've now tethered the machine. Right. So now you're not really experiencing that app again in, in the wild. In the way you really want to. All right. I know really important advice because now, I mean, now my Wi-Fi hat comes on as the IT guy. And like, okay, that's a separate access point. We're probably on a different channel. We need it properly secured so nobody else is on it. Yeah, all of that stuff is going to invoke overhead. Or you do what I do as a consumer and just sneak my little wireless network in. I saw IT guys hate it when you do that. <laughs> Let me just say for the record, you get, you know, I've watched whole networks drop to the knees because there's a half a dozen access points floating around, barely configured. This is where your sign comes in. No. Any no. questions? Yeah. That's yeah. it. Sign on the you door. You will break things. But the question is, how are you going to stop it? Yeah, you know, and that's part of the challenge is we... Okay, now we're going a little off topic, but as an infrastructure guy, I have ways to identify. We can hunt them down. And I've seen Microsoft <laughs> IT do that. I have been in a Microsoft office when the IT guys were hunting down rogue access points. They're yeah. serious about it. Your own guys, the guys especially in the black helicopter show up. Especially uh -uh. access points with DHCP. I was going to say, the DHCP server that. is the one that really takes them off. That. And also named MSFT guest. <laughs> Not good. That's bad. Yeah. yeah, I have been shut down a number of times in hotels running my DHCP server as yep. well. It causes problems. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, some of the other great features about uh, Visual Studio uh, 2012, obviously you know a lot about this, not just in the WinRT space, but in uh, the other space. There's so many great features. What uh, What's your favorite? Oh, that's like picking a favorite know. child, isn't it? But everybody <laughs> says that. What are um, some of your favorites? Well, okay. Well, probably my favorite, just because... I was the product manager for it. No, no bias. No, no bias at all. <laughs> not because it was not, it wasn't, it was my feature. Okay. Um, has to be PowerPoint storyboarding. So I don't PowerPoint know if anybody's seen PowerPoint storyboarding. Um, this is a new feature in Visual Studio 2012. Um, we had been, for years, people have been after us um, about do something for requirements. Yeah. Do something for requirements. All you do is give us a Word doc. We need real requirements generation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are a thousand ways to generate requirements. Sure. And everybody does them differently. Yep. So we looked at the world and we looked at the world that we were living in, this move towards the agile space and what were requirements in an agile space and storyboarding becomes the greatest thing you can do in that space. Mm -hmm. They're, they, they are short-term, they're quick, they're graphical. You can get feedback on them and you can move forward and build something. So we went off and built PowerPoint storyboarding to kind of meet the needs of the requirement space in the Agile world. It's not really in Studio, it's in PowerPoint. It is in PowerPoint, but it's connected to Studio. Okay. But it's connected to TFS and Studio. Yeah, kind of all that's together. Sort so, of a way of, so is this just a pack primarily for PowerPoint just to give you the sort of symbols? And yeah, so basically what it does, it's a plug-in for PowerPoint. It gives you a set of storyboarding shapes which are cool. Yep. And if you look at them and you can see what we've done, we do some voodoo with PowerPoint that you should try writing some of the PowerPoint code you'd have to do to make it do what we make it do. <laughs> it's very funky. There's a great one. So the two things, two big things, drag and drop of shapes mm -hmm. doesn't exist in PowerPoint today. We have drag and drop of shapes. Oh, nice. The way we construct a shape is it's a grouped object. Now, think about if you group a set of objects together mm. in PowerPoint, when you size them, what happens to them? All sorts of weird things. Spread all over all sorts of weird things. Bad things. So imagine if you had a, for instance, a scroll bar. Now, scroll bars have very specific characteristics that they conform to. Right. This when is you, top piece, bottom piece, slider piece, edges. Yep. Okay. So you have a background piece. You have a block, which is the center of it. You have an arrow at the top. You have an arrow at the bottom. When you size that as a standard PowerPoint object, 
weird things happen to weird. it. It doesn't <laughs> comply to any scroll doesn't bar like you've ever seen. Right. So we do lots of voodoo under the under the covers to resize all of the individual components properly to make them stay in the ratios that they should be so that they continue to match what you would actually see on hmm. the screen. That is a challenge. I, and I can think about what that code would be, but that's not easy to write. No, it's not. Yeah. There's a lot of little bits in there. Here's a Kanban board. Uh, the Kanban board's in TFS. That's true. Yep. That's, uh, this is a new thing that popped up in TFS preview. Um, which is one of the fun things about working in TFS today is that um, if you use the preview, the TFS, so it's actually even not even called preview anymore. Now it's just tfs.visualstudio.com. Um, now uh, they have moved from an 18-month ship cycle to like three-week shipping. So if you're using it, things just appear, which is great. Because you don't have to do anything. There's nothing to install. Just all of a sudden, there's a new link. Yeah. And there's the Kanban board. And it's like, oh, there's the Kanban board. That's cool. And if you're on the preview version, um, you notice it appear at different times to the different people, depending on how long you'd had your TFS preview account. Because huh. they didn't roll it out to everybody at the same time. They fed it out to a certain set of people, got some feedback on it, before they released it to the rest of the world. I also noticed a lot of features being deployed with NuGet instead of coming in the box. Or Is that sort of reaching around into Visual Studio itself? Um, updates? NuGet is. Um, it's still a little tricky. You have to be careful with source control when you're using mm -hmm. NuGet. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, definitely we're seeing that the, those are becoming a lot more of what people work on. Yeah. Um, the problem is you have to remember to include them in your source control when you want to share the project with someone else. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because otherwise they get the project and go, well, nothing compiles. Right. What are all these strange errors for things that I've never heard of? Because yeah. they're all in the NuGet libraries. And you have to be savvy to, to what those names of those libraries are. You do. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you start realizing it's like, okay, need to go and get those. Yep. But that's true of a lot of things. And you know, sure. source control, there is the project, and there's all the other things that you need yeah. that you just yeah. have to remember to include when you put source control away. Well, and, and having a buildable app is always harder than you think when you're trying to move to a different platform or you share it with someone else. Like right. getting to the point of being able to build what you've got. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's why things like continuing integration become so important because, you know, then I can make sure that I'm always able to build. I mean, I go back even to, um, to very early days. So it would have been VBits 95. Yikes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and I remember seeing the C++ team from Microsoft do a presentation. It was the guy who ran that team. And he talked even then about this concept that they could ship every single day. At the end of every day, they could have shipped their product. It might not do anything. It had no features in it, but the way they built software is that it was in shippable form. Mm -hmm. And they just continued doing that until they got to a point where it had what they needed in it. But they always knew that if it was the end of the world, they could ship it. Yeah. So is, is the Visual Studio team becoming agile? The Visual Studio team's always been very agile. It's, it's always one of these Frankenstein things, though, because you've got to take the Visual Studio team's 3,000 people right. or so. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's very That's hard a heck to be of a stand up. An, agile, like, <laughs> an agile 3,000 person organization. Right. But, you know, all of the smaller teams inside that, and we run these teams called Feature Crews, um, which is uh, one of the terms that you can use, but we have Scrum teams, we have XP teams. There are, hybrid agile teams going on the smaller teams become agile they ship in a very agile way but then you have layers of project management on top of that as you try and pull these things together because at some point we have to take them all put them in a box put it on a shelf um, wow. although the service organization of course with team foundation server and moving to a service world they don't have that restriction anymore so they can work on a small piece and when they feel that it's good enough to go they ship it and then they continue to iterate on it and speaking of iteration, so you, the Visual Studio team has said that there will be 
lots of new upcoming versions, very iterative. Yep, and the, the next one, update one, should be coming relatively soon, sometime this month, I believe, or mm. early in December. Wow. Um, which will give you some new features around SharePoint, some new features around XP targeting, um, some new ALM features just kind of across the board. And that'll be just sort of one day we'll get a box that says, hey, there's a new update. You're yeah, exactly. I mean, if you, yeah. Hopefully, if you've been using Visual Studio 2012 already, you'll have already seen the there's an update for Visual sure. Studio. Yeah. Come up and you can choose to take it or not take it. Um, and it's really up to you or your IT organization to define who can get it and who doesn't. And when to get it. That's very yep. cool. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik JustCode. If you're like me, you're probably using some productivity add-on in Visual Studio to check, refactor, and test your code. But how'd you like to get a complete list of your solution's errors on the fly as you type, and not just for the opened files? The new kit on the block, JustCode, does just that for all supported .NET languages as well as JavaScript. It's like having a compiler running all the time, only that JustCode is faster and requires less CPU time. One area where just code is definitely better is performance. The tool provides the fastest code analysis and better performance without slowing down Visual Studio. Another reason to try it is JavaScript support. It'll help you read, navigate, and refactor your JavaScript code better than you've ever imagined. Learn more about the features just code offers and download a trial at telerik.com justcode. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Well, Richard, you know what time it is. Ah, it must be that happy time again. That happy, happy time. It's a happy time. Yeah, the time of the show when we give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection to a lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And you're all members, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I say. Yep. So today's winner is Mike Bretherick. Nice. Give Great Mike a big hand. So he wins the Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection, which is everything that Telerik does in one box. Uh, it's a couple thousand dollars worth of software, and it does include the Windows 8 controls. controls yes, which yeah. currently are selling, I think, for $99, but they're going to keep going up. By $100 a month. Right. And, until until it makes more sense to just buy the whole suite. That's right. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go to the .NET Rock site and click on the big link that says Get Free Stuff. Yes. we want to give you free stuff. We give away free stuff in every show. And every December, coming right up here. Coming right up. We are going to pick $5,000 worth of technology to give away to a lucky winner of the .NET Rocks fan club. Mm -hmm. Even, Even someone who may have won before. That's right. Everybody's, Everybody's eligible. included. And we always like to ask our guests... If you had $5,000 today to spend on technology, not that you're biased or anything, <laughs> and the technology has to exist, hmm. no portable black holes. What would it be? No. Um, $5,000 isn't enough. Ah, uh, I love it. Because <laughs> I'd, have, I'd have to have one of the big 72-inch PixelSense boards. Oh, oh yeah. really? Yeah. And that's and more than five grand. 7500 yeah. I think. Yeah. Oh, the, you want the big, big one? I mean, there's... I want oh, the, the one big that, one. I want the one that Steve has in his office. That's right. Mr. Uh, Bomber has... I think it's an 80, isn't it? It might be an it's 80. Like an 80-inch touch display. I'm betting that's more than $5,000. Well, well, let's figure out how... Would that be something you guys would like to win? <laughs> yeah. A giant screen hanging on your wall that you could touch. Yeah. Imagine your stand-up with a screen like that, huh? Does it connect? <laughs> Everybody could play. Does it connect to the Windows Store? How do I get apps for that? I don't. I don't know. I think it does. I think it runs Windows Eight. That's got to be twenty or thirty thousand oollars oh. That thing. Oh, I would have thought so. Yeah. Wow. 
All right, so we could either give you, you know, something about five thousand dollars, or we could put your name back in the pool, and then, you know, when yeah. we have thirty thousand, five six years from now, we'll buy the Pixel Sense, <laughs> go back in time, and give it to you. There's sort so of a race there. You know, they'll get cheaper. Yeah, somewhere in there. I somewhere appreciate there. that you've blown the budget there, Matt. I like that. Yeah, you're the first person who says it's not enough. Yeah, the first person, not even close. That's not a prize. That's a prize. <laughs> well, go big or go home. There you go. We're currently thinking a uh, a MakerBot. Uh, the UltraBot. Uh, UltraBot. 3D printer. 3D printer. Cool. Yep. With and a, a Surface. Surface Pro and all the stuff fixings to be the full 3D printing kit. That would be yep. very cool. I think we can do that for about five grand. Because the Surface Pro is going to have the Wacom tablet sort yeah, of on it. It'll have the digitizer pen and everything right. built into pen, it. Digitizer pen, so you'll yeah. be able to use that. To be able to actually make your little 3D renderings and then actually make them. Now, if we had a, a 3D printer that made a 3D printer, we could all go home. Yeah. <laughs> then right? we'd just be <clears throat> inviting our robotic overlords into our homes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Team, there, there's right. many Hot. things you could apply that to. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, we're not there for any of them yet, or I no, wouldn't. Not be. yet. But yeah. It's getting closer. Much closer. All right, I want to jump back into this because I'm still in awe of the whole remote debugging thing and, and really polishing up the development cycle we're getting into with these these new styles of apps because I think the, the big challenge here is really understanding how people are using them. Which is different today. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all come out of a world and, you know, a lot of the problem that we have is, you know, software engineers, and I know I'm getting on a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, we have a we live in a world where we is a desktop, and then wow, laptops <laughs> were awesome, and now, now they're connected to this internet thing, and Let that's me, really cool. I got to tell you a story that's great. <laughs> I just got a Lumia 920. Just came out on Friday, right? I love this Nokia phone. I took it to the bar where my my homies hang out, right? And the guys that run the bar and stuff, they're all you know I, iPhone guys and whatever, and they're like. What the hell is that? It looks like Star Trek. I was like, man, pretty much. Check it out. You know, they first of all, live towels blew them away. The fact that they could see the te the temperature, my next appointment, and a random photo and the People Hub. You know, you show them the People Hub, they're blown away. Then I showed them internet sharing, like you know, Wi-Fi hotspot for everybody because they were actually considering getting. Wi-Fi and the they've gone through like you know Comcast and AT and T for DSL and various things worked and didn't work. It's like no, just go get one of these. Boom, put it up and you're done. Yeah. So the, like I had to pry it out of their hands. They were salivating over this phone. Well, and I think what's great about actually on the Windows Phone um, and also on the Surface and the way you think about apps today is you know in a lot of cases you, the the iPhone world or even the Android world an app is an app and it's a standalone thing. Yeah. So the app does this thing, and then there's another app that does this thing, and there's an app for that. Right. And what's happening to the world is there's an app that does it all. Right. So when I think about it, I mean, um, I don't use my, any of the social media apps on my device no. because my people hub does it gives all. me access to all of them. Right. So when I post, I automatically post to Facebook and Twitter and MSN and Live. LinkedIn and all LinkedIn, that. LinkedIn, exactly. Well, so and today was the day that when we recorded the show that the Skype preview for WinPhone 8 came out. just downloaded it. And as soon as you turn it on, it comes, you connect up to your Skype account and it shows you all your Skype entries. And then while I'm looking at it, all the LinkedIn entries arrived. And then all the Twitter entries arrived. And then all my Outlook entries arrived. <laughs> and then all my Facebook entries arrived. And suddenly I know a lot of people in Skype. Right. But it, it got to exactly And you don't want a video conference with all of them, do no. you? No. <laughs> but it, it, it spoke again to this idea of that's what they, you know, 
Skype is just another viewpoint into all of that people information. Right, and it's not managed. Doesn't have to manage its own contacts. Like, no, it's just. A I don't have to copy thing. people across. Right, it just right. connected them together. That's right. We have that federation in the cloud, so mm -hmm. that our identities are out there now, and they go to wherever they need to be. But I think you know, all of lots of apps are moving in that direction. Yeah. I want to be getting information from lots of different places, and the apps can then help me make decisions on it based on you know my preferences or the way this data is coming in and what I think about or where I am, but it comes to one place. Don't make me go and try and back to that old school world of I'm going to go here for this piece of information, here for this piece of information, here for this piece of information, and then try and remember all of that and make a decision based on it. Here's another thing that was amazing, and I don't know if uh, iPhones do this well or not because I haven't had one in a year or so, but I'm driving and I have, I'm connected to Bluetooth, so it knows I'm moving and it knows I'm in the car because I'm connected. And I get a text and it says, beep, Text from Richard Campbell. You can say, read it, or ignore, right? Read it. So it reads me the text, and it says, beep. You can say, reply, or ignore. So I reply, and what it's doing is I had to turn this on because it didn't work the first time. It said, you have to turn on the speech recognition service. It records my voice and sends that voice to some machine in the cloud that does processing, speech processing that really well with a lot of CPU power and then sends me back the text of what it actually, what I said. Right. And I thought yeah, that was brilliant. And it, it also knows things like it'll say smiley face. It doesn't say oh, yeah, colon right. dash. And it's bracket. really fun when it reads Twitter, when it reads <laughs> tweets, because it's like at Carl Franklin, at Rich Campbell, at, you know. Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> the, the one that's freaked the people out so much ever since I had my Windows phone is I put... Um, I put this um, voicemail app on because AT&T didn't support visual voicemail. Right. And one of the things it does is it uses my contact list. So if you call from my contact list, yeah. it will say, it'll yeah. say, hi, Carl. Right. Mac isn't available today. So people just go, <laughs> what? I didn't know it was me. What? <laughs> it knows who you are. It yeah. knows what it you're doing. It is personal and contextual. Yeah, personal yeah. and contextual, yeah. exactly. It knows yeah. about you. It knows about the people who are trying to get in touch with you. Right. Personalized <laughs> voicemail. I love that. Um, but this is where apps are going. I mean, they are. I mean, it, it's about me. It's about where I am. It's about what I'm doing today. You know, when you're talking about driving, you know, one of the things yeah. with my, my daughter is going to be is driving and is going to be driving by herself quite soon. Yeah. You know, I need to know if my phone is moving because I want it to turn off. Well, I'm getting my 17-year-old daughter one of these because I know that occasionally she does text and drive, you know. Yep. Even and, though she you know, doesn't. That at least gets over the looking at the thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She's probably still going, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. Just looking around, la, la. I really um, need the text message that says, your daughter's doing 85. Yeah. <laughs> Would you like to talk to her now? I believe that technology yes. exists as yes. well. Shall I just shut the car down oh, now? Oh, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> car takes over, starts driving for home. Your father wants to speak to you. You know, speaking of technology that's disruptive like that in quite a literal way, do you remember when we talked on that other show, that comedy show we did? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I won't bring up the we'll name bring of, it up, yeah. Because uh, it's a professional show. Uh, the Cell Phone Jammer. Yes. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. And you bought one. I have one. And you tried it. Yes, it doesn't do what you want it to do. So what this cell phone jammer does, imagine you're on a train and trying to read or nap, and somebody's going, yeah, you can press a button and it will hang them up. Yes. Now, it doesn't do what you want it to do. What it does is cause everybody in the room to say hello what? at the same time. Hello? 
What? Now, not that I would ever do this, but if you turn this thing on and just walk from train car to train car to train car, you'll be followed by perpetual rings of, hello? Hello? Can, Can you, you hear, hear me, me now? now? Can you hear me what? now? What? Damn this phone. And then when you get to the other train, if you turned around and walked back, you get to hear them all do it again. And after about the third or fourth pass, it's just curse words. <laughs> not that I would do that. But what it really needs to do is go, beep, you have been disconnected yes. permanently. Please put your phone away. <laughs> but it's good. But it's, it's it has its place. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I know that there is one in the market at the moment. I'm trying to remember. I don't remember who makes it, but it actually uses like the um, it uses the phones uh, where it knows whether the phone's moving. Right. Yeah. So because what you want is for your kids or pretty much for anybody, you want them not to be able to text while they're moving. Right. But you do want them to be able to use the phone when they're stopped. Right. In case something's gone wrong and they need to do an emergency. So right. you don't want to put a jammer in that just blocks it completely. Yeah. But use the fact that I know, you know, using my gyroscope, that I'm moving, I'm moving, and when I stop, I turn everything back on again. It'd yeah. be a great feature of a phone, you know, teen yep. mode. Or <laughs> just, oh, you could just make it broader and say, idiot mode. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but the teen would crack it. <laughs> probably. Um, the idiot probably wouldn't. Probably not. <laughs> 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 All right, so you Studio 2012 is out the door. What are you working on now? Are you just in the next service pack, next service pack? Is that well, I'm like? still trying to finish getting Studio out the door because, of course, now we've moved to these quarterly release cycles, right, right. roughly. We're always launching. Right. It's great. You know, there's never a downtime. I, mean, <laughs> I play this little video today at, at the show, you know, talking about making the moves to services, saying, you used to have this great time. You'd, you'd, do, you'd build and you'd build and you'd build and you'd get to ship and you'd ship something and then everybody would sit down and go... <sighs> that was awesome. That was awesome. And then in a few weeks' time, you go, okay, what I've had enough R time. Let's let's plan something else. Yeah. Now it's like you ship, you ship, you ship, you ship it out the door, and you go, oh no, I'm going to keep shipping, and I'm going to keep shipping, and I'm never going to take vacation <laughs> hey, again. Oh, we were talking um, about how do I use that? How do I do that? Use it or lose it? Vacation thing when I yeah. never have any time off. Um, so we're just continually shipping. So really. you know, my first thought is that's a lot of road trips, and we want to go home. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we'll let you go home. I don't think we're going to do a road trip every time we ship. My wife's going to be very happy about yeah. that. Yeah. Basically, because you can't get around the country fast, fast enough. Fast enough. That's right. It's true. <laughs> um, but no, we just keep we keep moving forward. We keep pushing new stuff out the door. I mean, we want to make sure that we, you know, as we, you know, hear of new things that need to be done, or we see the way people use the products, and we use some technology. I mean, Richard talked about in today's show the preemptive stuff. Mm -hmm. yep. We've always had a technology similar to that called Squim, where we can when you um, when you choose to send feedback to Microsoft. That's us. That's our scrim technology where you're giving us information about how you use the product, what bits you use the most, what bits you use the least mm. that we as a product team make product decisions on as far as, you know, we'll invest over here or we need to fix this or these sort of things. So that's we cool. continually take all of that information in and, you know, now we're getting to a cycle where we can deliver on a very regular basis for everybody. What is the, what, what are some of the things we can look forward to in this next service pack, if you call it? A so um, there's some work we've done around SharePoint testing. Um, and SharePoint integration. Cool. Um, some XP targeting work as well, which will allow us to, um, you know, allow you to target XP development, things like that so you're in a better about, way. About not Windows XP, but rather 
Sort of the extreme programming model? No, Windows XP. Windows XP. Windows targeting XP. When I think about targeting Windows XP, I want a sight on a shotgun. That's, uh-huh. uh-huh. that's my target. <laughs> okay, XP. okay. You can, yes, that's your opinion. That's fine. Um, and then just continually adding in a lot of the ALM features that we have. Yeah. So sure. the testing SharePoint is ALM, but then also the stuff we roll out in the service obviously gets rolled down into the on premise. And we're talking so, about, so this is T- so TFS as a service now has become. The testing Test. bread for what will show up in TFS on premise, pretty much, because okay. they because they can ship much more quickly, mm-hmm. and they have the op, you know, they have the ability to try things out and see if it works the right way. Right. Um, like I wish they'd move the Kanban board link somewhere else. Okay. Um, so if any of the TFS team are listening, I'd love you to move the Kanban board link. But since you have <laughs> Squim technology, you can find out whether people are actually finding it and using Correct. it. Okay. Yeah. And we actually don't need Squim to do it on the service. Okay. Right. Because. When they come to the service, they're coming to my server. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Squim is needed if you're if when they go to your app, they're doing it on their own device. Yeah. Right. But because the service is all web based now, you know, we know what they're we know what's happening, we yeah. know how they use stuff. And do you back. actually know how often they're pushing up the TFS as a service instance? Like is it changing that frequently? Uh, literally, yeah. I mean literally they, they run a three week cadence. Hmm. Um, and then I think they ship every four or five weeks. Okay. They actually ship stuff. So they build for three weeks. And then they do some, they do uh, some testing and some other bits and pieces, and then they ship it. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, they don't, they don't do break. They're more careful with something that might break stuff. Right. But if they're adding new features, they can put a new feature in without, not at the risk of doing anything, any harm to anybody else. Right. And it, it's just a new feature doesn't work. You're not yeah. that committed to that feature. That yeah. I mean, we anyway. just got um, building the cloud as a preview. Oh yeah. So they've released that as a preview, but they released the Kanban board as a full thing. Now we can do builds in the cloud as well, um, and we'll continue moving in that direction. There's a few things you can't do just because of technology lacking, like reporting that we do from TFS today is very reliant on analysis services mm-hmm. in SQL Server. There's no cube in the cloud. Not yet. Yeah. So you can't do a cube in the cloud, so you can't do the reporting in the cloud yeah. yet. Yeah, that, need, that needs to get there. That's the SQL Azure yeah. guys. We've got to be on them about yeah. that. That's a great feature once it gets No, there. It's, it's Windows Azure SQL database. Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, wait, that name's not long enough. Can we add a few more words? <laughs> no, because I already own the longest product name at Microsoft, which is, uh, who blimey, the Microsoft Visual Studio Team System 2005 Team Edition for Database Professionals. Oh, yes, I remember. That's, that's why we call it Data, Data Dude. Dude. That's <laughs> why we call it Data Dude. I tried to get Data Dude as the actual name. Yeah. But I couldn't get it couldn't past get it LCA or brand. Yeah, I mean, oh. System Center Operations Manager 2012 Application Performance Monitoring is a pretty good long name, too. <laughs> Dot it, com. It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is a pretty long name. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at QuickLearn, who offer comprehensive TFS 2012 training, both remotely and in classroom at their facility in Kirkland, Washington. They have six courses for TFS 2012, ranging from two to five days. These guys are Visual Studio ALM MVPs and certified trainers with over 16 years of experience. So stop messing around. Visit quicklearn.com DNR and save 15% off any QuickLearn TFS 2012 course. That's quicklearn.com DNR. Hey, you know, we're down to the last few minutes of the show. Can we talk a little bit about the humanitarian toolbox? Because I know this is a you're part of this initiative. You know, it really came about as part of this road trip, and I and it's I really like to see where you're at with this. Well, and we should probably just give a little elevator pitch about what it is first. Sure. 
when we started the road trip, we Richard and I, first of all, wanted to attach ourselves with .NET Rocks to some charity of some kind, and always came back to this idea that we never wanted to pick a winner because you know which charity is deserving. Maybe, and now we're onto the idea of well, w- should we set up some of something ourselves so that we can oversee whatever? It's you know it's more than we want to deal with. So uh, when you guys were planning the road trip and realized that we should have some sort of um, charity event. And something so, really attached something, to what developers can do. That's it. That's mm-hmm. exactly it. Because anybody can drive a hammer, you know, with a nail and build houses and stuff. You know, you have to want to, of course. But it's a skill a lot of people have. But our skills are very unique. And we can use those skills to make a difference in the world. So this is where the Humanitarian Toolbox was born. Yeah, and it's a really exciting um, project and initiative um, that really came up when we first started talking about the tour and this idea of, as you say, looking for something that could really help a lot of people yeah. that wasn't, you know, got us over this, we have to pick a charity. Yeah. Um, and let's pick a, let's pick a cause. Disaster a problem, relief. Which was disaster relief. Yeah. It happens all over the world. It happens much more often than you're ever aware of. There's yeah. always a disaster relief somewhere. It happens from a very local level mm. all the way up to like global and national levels. Mm. I mean, and we just saw it happen with Sandy when it came through mm-hmm. that really reinstilled and slightly paused the yes. whole initiative because yeah. all of the people who were working on it with us are now dealing with Sandy. Yeah. Right. So once they could get back from that, then we can move it forward. But it also became very interesting as we started dealing with all of the NGOs and we really wanted to get the NGOs involved because we wanted to make sure this was a, a really good community and charity and supported by everybody so it could continue forward. So these non-governmental organizations are already working in the field with disaster relief so they know what they need from IT. They just need people to help them. Right, and we we picked some very specific ones. Um, NetHope, Crisis Commons, um, and Geeks with... Without, without bounds, who are spe- who specialize in in taking technology and applying it to situations like disaster relief. And the goal was that we thought on the road trip was we've all done give camps, mm-hmm. you know, and these kind of smaller ones, um, and we wanted to do something that could encompass the entire country or potentially the entire world. Yeah. And with some of the new technology we have for managing source with TFS service and the ability to work remotely no matter where you are and just join a project, we now have the ability to not only crowdsource development on the day or the weekend when you're there, but for you to continue to contribute to that, yeah. for the people who manage each of the little projects to mm. be anywhere in the world. Right. Um, and we also have the ability for um, to get ideas from the people who are the experts. And I think this is the key thing that we're looking at is we're talking to these NGOs who are expert in this thing and we're getting them to give us the ideas. They're building our product backlog for us to make sure that none of the work we do is wasted, that we actually build the right thing and the thing that meets their needs. So you actually looked around inside Microsoft for people who were trying to do this already and you found Tony Serma. Tony Serma. Um, uh, plus a, a number of other people now who we're, we're talking around. Right. Um, but we, yeah, inside Microsoft, we have an inzi- entire disaster relief organization uh, yeah. where their, their job is when bad things happen in the world, they go and support them with technology or with software or whatever it is they need to. This is the citizenship group? The citizenship group. Yeah, yeah. which I don't think most people even know that exists. We right. don't talk about it. That's interesting. Um, we don't talk about a lot of the charitable work that we do just yeah. as a matter of course at Microsoft. It's yeah. just something we do. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but what we, you know, what this allows us to do is really be able to just like get, give the opportunity for 
all the developers out there to be able to give back, as you say, unique skills. The problem is you can give money, and then that money then goes to pay a developer. Right. At whatever rate that developer is going to charge to, you know, and, and whatever Somebody's skill level they are. to make sure they actually write the right stuff. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So what we want to do is allow you to all give the one thing that you have that's unique, um, which is your skills. And whether it's the skills in writing code, whether you're a QA person, whether you develop .NET code, or potentially even if you develop iOS code or Android code, because... Mm-hmm. You know, when you're in a disaster situation, I can't imply the device you're going to have with you. Yeah, right. I need something that works on all those devices. Right. Mm-hmm. So we need people who can do all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. So platform agnostic, <laughs> lots of cloud stuff. Lots of cloud mm-hmm. stuff. Lots of cloud stuff, although interestingly, if you actually, one, uh, once we open up our backlog, you'll see that the first item on the backlog um, is an item to deal with occasionally connected situations. Oh, yeah. Because that's, that's the, what's the reality. Because that's the reality. It was the very first thing, the very first meeting I had with Geasley from NetHope. Mm-hmm. The first thing he brought up was the, one of the biggest problems we have in disaster situations is we don't always have connectivity. Mm-hmm. So there are people out there who can't use devices or can't use apps because they rely on an internet connection. Yep. And what we actually need to build is something that works offline all the time, yep. um, but can constantly look for a connection and knows how to use that connection, even if it's only a very brief connection. So we do it looking at burst data transfer, very small packages. How do you sniff the connections without killing battery life? All of those sort of problems are problems we need to fix. Yeah. And we need sets of modules or something that all of the apps can use that utilize that underlying technology around how do you work in an occasionally connected scenario. Yeah. So yeah, even if the connection's unstable or relatively slow, you can get a little bit of data up each time and you're always making progress. Exactly. You know, have to count on, hey, I got an LTE connection, here's everything. Yeah. And it, it's, it's actually quite, it, we used to think about it so-so, mm-hmm. and we've stopped thinking about it. Yeah. By, we just assume there's always going to be a connection. Yeah. Yeah. It was so much easier to just always have connectivity everywhere than it was to figure out how to do it. Yeah, and Sandy's client. really the first time in, in recent memory when you've actually seen a disaster that caused that as a huge problem. Yeah. Right? All of those cells going tow- da- cell towers going down in such a highly populated area. And all of a sudden, you know, um, there was no cell connectivity. Right. And that was really hard because everybody's moved to just cell phones. Mm-hmm. No one has a landline anymore. You know, they've converted the payphones in New York to be internet cafes. Yeah. yeah. Um, Wi-Fi connections. <laughs> they really have. They <laughs> really have. They're Wi-Fi connections. Because that's no. a, they, you couldn't make money off an actual phone call. Right. No. And then all of a sudden, you Put take that away. And now people really don't know what to do. And they're really in trouble. Because well, and I think people are used to the fact that they're always connected. Yep. So you take that away from them, they're much more shocked than 30 years ago, you know, sort of pre-cell phone, where sometimes the phone doesn't work. Yeah. Sometimes well, you're not connected. Just to make a call to action here, uh, the, the website you can go to is humanitariantoolbox.net. And congratulations on span- spelling humanitarian, right? As Richard said before. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and, and really actually, need- listeners on the show, um, if, you, if you want to submit short addresses okay. that stand for that, um, we will take them under advisement and make some redirect links. All right, good. Uh, and so all you need to do now is sign up, and then they will get in touch with you when there's stuff to do. Yeah, and we should have something. Um, our TFS infrastructure is up. We're uh, trying to get our Coplex infrastructure up now. Mm-hmm. Um, we're working on implementing a system called User Voice that allows people to give their own feedback on what we're building. I'm hopeful by um, early December... Um, with the slight delay that has been caused by Sandy and, and losing some of the NGO people. But by early to, early to mid-December, or at least by the end of the year, we can be up and running. We'll have projects out there. Um, if you go and sign up, send, give us your email address, tell us what you're, um, what you're good at, 
um, we will get back in touch with you with a list of projects that are out there which you can just sign up and join. So Matt, one other thing, uh, you're going to be at Dev Intersection with us here in just a couple of weeks. Yeah, actually, really excited about this show. This is a, this is a new show, and we're putting it on for the first time to kind of mark the end of the .NET Rocks road trip. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, we were trying to find a way to get to Vegas in December. Yeah. Um, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> just so happened that we'd initially been stopping in California, and Vegas really isn't that far Not away. That far away. Far away. Um, but it's going to be, it should be a really, really good show. We've got some great speakers coming down. Including I you. Yeah, I will be there. Yeah. I will be keynoting. Scott Goo. Uh, Scott Goo's coming down to keynote. We're actually looking to do an interesting keynote that we haven't announced yet. Mm. Um, around um, app development um, and looking at a number of the top app devs um, in the market and kind of getting their experiences um, for app development. So that's Great. something we're working on at the moment. That's cool. Um, we'll have a track of, we'll, I'm actually putting together a track of content today called Scrum in a Day. Wow, cool. Where we will walk through um, a one-day sprint Basically, nice. looking oh, at all nice. of the tools and stuff that you have, how you'd run it, and how you'd support a sprint. You wouldn't normally do a sprint in a day. That's a little extreme. Mm -hmm. We could run it on double speed, though. Yeah. We, <laughs> we could sprint in half a day, sprint a <laughs> quarter of a day. Yeah. You know sprint on lots of caffeine, like exactly. <laughs> um, and we're also trying to do a, another new thing, which we'll do um, these 20-minute talks. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking months. to try and get all of the speakers um, together. Um, and what I'm going to do is run, run a set of talks that will video. Yeah. Um, essentially where any speaker can come in and essentially talk about anything they want. So it's kind anything. of like that other kind of like what I did T ends with D rhymes with Ed something like that talks. Um, something like that. and we will video the speakers and they will be able to have a live audience and yeah. it's literally a good chance for them to step up as long as they don't go over 20 minutes to come and talk about anything they like. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, also the Franklin Brothers band's going to be there. That is That's true. the most important thing. Right? <laughs> it's the after party. The attendee party. Yep. And uh, Scott Hanselman will be there. Yep. Scott Hunter. Hunter. Oh, we have a full set of Scott. Yeah, the, the full Scott brigade will mm -hmm. be there. And uh, Chris Sells will be there. Kate Gregory will be mm -hmm. there. I'm doing a one-day post-con. I'm actually standing in for Paul Sheriff, who's ill, doing a one-day pre-con on building a Windows Store app from stem to stern all day. Nice. And uh, you're doing your talks. I, I'm also doing a workshop with Brian Randall on DevOps. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you like Richard's DevOps talk? Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So a Thanks. full day workshop. All day. DevIntersection.com. And with that, I think that's a show. I think we plugged just about everything we could possibly plug. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> One more hand for Matt Nunn. Yeah. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. 
For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 